I'm Garrick, and we're going to spend the next three episodes looking at the problems of evil and suffering. I'm Timothy, as we struggle this week with the logical problem of how a good God might allow evil and suffering, Garrick and I will also be taking a look at U2's 1997 album, Pop. To learn more about the questions of how a good God can allow evil in the world, consider picking up a copy of The Problem of Evil by Jeremy Evans, published by our friends at B&H Academic. The name of that book is The Problem of Evil, and the author is Jeremy Evans. To learn more about this book and many other outstanding apologetics resources, go to bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. In each episode of this podcast, my friend Garrick Bailey and I tackle a topic that makes it difficult to trust the truth of the Christian faith. Along the way, we talk about music, movies, theology, and culture. To support this podcast and to receive Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. Well, what we're going to talk about today is, as we've said, the problem of evil, specifically this week, the logical problem of evil. Now, one of the most pressing issues in the problem of evil is this one that happens every episode almost of Three Chords in the Truth, and it's this. How in a world that is managed and superintended by a good God, how on earth can innocent toys be put into battle (laughs) against one another in the Toy Box Hero Tournament? This happens every single episode. This is an evidence of this problem of evil that inflicts itself upon our world. And so we are going to start out with this week with the Toy Box Hero Tournament. And this week we have my second child, Amy. And your second child, That's right, I yes. believe, going up against each other. So this is going to be a battle between our second children. My second child is 18 years old, and yours is, how old is he? Half that age, nine. Okay. And I turned nine at the beginning of COVID, so. So my child has got twice the years, but probably not as fierce a toys, I will admit. I'm thinking about, I know your second child, I know the types of toys that he prefers, and I know that it could be that my child's toy does not stand a chance. So go ahead with whatever toy you have brought to participate in the Toy Box Hero Tournament. Absolutely. So every year, around this time of year, one of my son's favorite things in the world is to receive, at the beginning of December, his Lego Advent calendar. And so this year's, I think, is especially awesome. And so I bring to the table today, I'm bringing two things. So you might have to, we'll see what happens. I am bringing the mini versions of... The good old X-Wing original. Look at that. That's a pr- that is a pretty stinking cool mini For as version. small as that yes. X-Wing is, yes. that is an incredible build. I on was that. so yes. impressed with this. We'll we'll include pictures on the show notes. And a very close second, or maybe some people might prefer to the X-Wing, is one of our new favorites in the Star Wars universe, the Razor Crest. Look at that. Look at that. 
So we've got the Razor Crest and an X-Wing fighter. And here's the question that's going to be at play in this. And we have to go back to Star Wars Episode Four to think about this. And that is, what can an X-Wing actually hit from a distance? <laughs> Remember, he can't bullseye anything any larger than a Womp Rat in Episode Four, And in fact, he can't really do that in an X-Wing outside of the help of the Force. And so... We have to ask the question because what I am bringing today is a creature that, first off, they should feel very guilty if they fire any weaponry at this one because <laughs> this is, here is what I have right here. If you will notice, it is a red panda. <gasps> oh, my god. It is goodness. a stuffed red panda. Now, most people don't know this about me. This is something that uh, very few people know outside my family. I am absolutely wild about red pandas. Or, hey, hey. I really like red pandas pandas a lot. Hey, I also, it is also my favorite animal. My favorite animal growing up has always been the cheetah and it's still like way up there, right? But when I discovered the red panda in my 30s, let me go ahead and throw that out there. It instantly went to the top of the chart. So you and did you and I just become best friends? Because we did. remember C.S. Lewis says friendship is built when somebody says, oh, you also? Yes. <laughs> and there we go. It actually is. And the funny thing is, here's the funny thing. The first time I ever saw a red panda, we were at Taronga Zoo in Sydney, Australia. So I was in my 30s by that point at Taronga Zoo, Sydney, Australia. And I had never heard of or even seen a red panda in any way, shape or form. Taronga Zoo, the great greatest zoo in the entire world. And there were red pandas at the Taronga Zoo. And I stood there for a half hour just watching these red pandas running around, wrestling with each other, things like that. And I was in absolute awe of the red pandas. And I've even now, we've driven as much as two hours to a zoo just to see a red panda. I'm really into red pandas. <laughs> So for you listeners out there who can't remember the history that Timothy and I have, we've known each other since the year 2014, right? And and worked closely together from 2014 up until this year and had no idea. No idea. And even our even our stories of discovery of the red panda are similar except I didn't get to go to Australia, but whatever, whatever, you know, internet, it's also good. So here we go. We have Red Panda against an X-Wing and the Razor Crest. And this Red Panda is a, is a really cool one. This one comes from St. Louis Zoo, which is one of the zoos we've driven a long ways just to go see a Red Panda. This one has on its on its posterior, it has something called Wild Republic. It says right there, Wild Republic. I think that means this is some sort of a revolutionary Red Panda or something like that. I don't know, from the French Revolution or something. Who knows? But nonetheless, we've got this Red Panda. We The real question is, can an X-Wing fighter hit a red panda? And secondly, the ethical question of should it? Yeah, well, I think we can answer should it as a definite no. Unless, I mean, I guess if, if the red panda were rabid. But I would say that like red pandas would be the manifestation of the good side of the light side of the force. I mean, if, you know, cats are obviously the manifestation of the dark side, red pandas would be the opposite. And so the ethical question, that's a pretty easy one. I think even if I had only brought the razor crest to the table, that given what we've learned about the Mandalorian, I don't think he could blow it up. I think he would much more likely be to, 
get out of the razor crest and adopt it, right? And go on a journey to take it to wherever it really belongs or whatever. Yes, we have a journey of the Mandalorian taking the red panda to the Toronto. <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's season three. Who knows? Who there knows? we go. Okay, I just I, I think the red panda, though it may not be fierce and mighty, the red panda is certainly a winner at other levels that are very significant in this. So I almost chose for today. I almost chose Eli has really gotten interested in some of the the newer characters of the the dark side and especially like the red troopers of different kinds i almost brought his red trooper that would have been done for right like because well so red troopers can actually aim so not only could he have roasted the red panda but he would have so right because he's evil so there we go he's he's evil that brings us full circle here to the problem of evil and suffering it does it does that the fact we live in a world in which red pandas can at least theoretically suffer that is an evil world in many ways and so that is the problem of evil problem of suffering it is one of the most pressing questions in our day so just recently a couple of my doctor of education students that were on last season on the program they did this major research project in which they determined what were the primary reasons that people struggled with their faith in college. And I really thought it was going to be faith in science. I thought it would be the authority of scripture. There were all sorts of things that I thought they were going to come up with. And yet, not just a a slight difference, but at sometimes a two-to-one ratio in terms of the numbers of people who said the number one of these college students who are struggling with their faith, they said the number one reason I struggle with my faith is the problem of evil. That's the big one for many college students. And that was far and away the number one response was the problem of evil above everything else. This is something in our world, and especially in a world that we're living in right now with the coronavirus and everything like that. I think that right now and in the upcoming months and years, we are going to have to be answering this particular question of the problem of evil. And that's why we're going to spend three episodes on the problem of evil really to equip each of you to be able to respond to issues related to the problem of evil. I was far less surprised by this than you were. One, I think just because I had had that similar discussion earlier, but also just because I never have been as smart as Timothy and don't work, I don't think the same way that he does. And so I think you, Timothy, assumed here are these evidential problems that are really going to be at the top of the list because that's really kind of what it was and what it would be for you, right? We just happen to be in a place in society, and I think have been for probably a couple decades or so now, where the problem is less technically philosophical. And so that's why we're going to, that's why we'll treat three different problems of evil or three different types of problems of evil. So just to give a summary of the problem of evil from the perspective of an atheist. So I want to give it first from their perspective, how they see it, and then we'll look at the logical components of this. But Bart Ehrman, who is, of course, a very famous skeptic who became an agnostic, who has recently relatively declared himself not merely to be an agnostic, but an atheist, he's written a book entitled God's Problem, which he articulates the fact that the reason he walked away from Christianity was due to the problem of evil. He walked away from his evangelical faith, his trust in scripture on the basis of other things, but the reason he He turned his back completely on God and any sort of God of the sort that is represented in the Christian scriptures is the problem of evil. And here's what he had to say. 
So I ended up, uh, I ended up dealing with these and, and other problems uh, in my class at Rutgers. I taught the class, but after the class, I kept thinking about it. As I said, I'd been a pastor of a church. Uh, at this point in my life, uh, I was no longer a strong evangelical Christian, as I had been at one point, but I was a believer. I didn't believe the Bible was the inerrant word of God or anything like that, but I did believe that God was active in the world, that God had brought salvation to the world through Jesus Christ, that faith in Christ was important for salvation, but also was uh, that, that understanding who Christ really was provided insight into the world as it really is because it shows how God works in the world. God works in the world through a crucified man. That was my basic theology at the time. But the more I kept thinking about things and kept thinking about life, the more troubled I became. Over the years, I experienced suffering myself and saw suffering at first and second hand, as you all have. I saw cancer taking away loved ones in the prime of life, teenage suicide, teenagers being killed in car accidents, birth defects, failed marriages. I met a friend who had escaped the killing fields of Cambodia. I encountered homelessness and poverty. I not only experienced first or second hand evil, I kept reading about war, about genocides, the Holocaust, and then subsequent genocides in Cambodia, Bosnia, Rwanda, now Darfur, ethnic cleansings, Flu epidemics, 1918, a flu epidemic that kills 30 million people worldwide and killed more Americans. The flu killed more Americans than all of the wars of the 20th century combined. I came to a point, knowing what the biblical authors had said about suffering and knowing what the philosophers had said about suffering and what the theologians had said about suffering, where I simply didn't think any of the answers added up anymore. I had been raised to believe in a God who intervenes in this world for good, a God who answers prayer, a God who brings salvation. But if God intervenes in the world, why doesn't he intervene in the world? This is also a pastoral problem, and I don't mean that just a problem for pastors. I mean pastoral in that broad sense of the term of people who are shepherding other people's souls. This is a problem I remember several times of having faced this at different times as a pastor. At one particular time, I saw it handled horribly. I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and a woman, her daughter had just through some horrific things, ended up in this being pushed from a moving van on the highway and uh, was on drugs at the time. And a health and wealth preacher was there, showed up at the emergency room who knew her, and I did as well. And he told her, if you just pray enough and have enough faith, God will keep your daughter from dying. And whatever's happening to her is just you and her getting what you deserve for a lack of faith and a lack of trust in God. And if you just will turn to God and trust enough that God won't let your your daughter die. And just an awful, horrific way and 
I'm left standing there. It's like you have spoken things in the name of God that are utterly blasphemous. This is not how God works. This is not how life works. Her daughter is dying right now, and what she needs is comfort, and what she needs is an affirmation of the sovereignty of God, not being told, if you just pray hard enough, things will turn good for you. And that's that's where we start to see the problem of evil is not just a distant theoretical issue. It is a real concrete, difficult issue that we face in our lives. Yeah, oddly enough, that response from that health and wealth preacher is precisely one of the responses that you will see regarding COVID in the world today. If you spend long enough on the interwebs, social media, you're going to see one of two positions, right? Something like the pandemic is proof that God does not, cannot exist. And then on the other, the polar opposite of that, you will see, no, the pandemic exists precisely because of our evil, our failure, the state of this world, and and this is evidence of God's judgment, right? Exactly. And the truth is that Scripture doesn't give us either of those false dilemmas, either side of that. Scripture gives us something different and more comprehensive and more complex, but also more beautiful and something that cultivates authentic human flourishing and goodness. If we really look at what Scripture itself does today, it does and has to say, and most of all, what Scripture does is it orients us toward the gospel. It orients us toward the cross and the empty tomb, ultimately. Well, let's take a look at the problem of evil. Let's actually lay out the logical problem of evil. And as we've had a discussion before, there's a couple of different ways even to set up the different parts of this argument. But regardless of how we do it, there are three different facts that are part of it. And it's God is all good, God is all powerful, and evil exists. Now, sometimes God is all good and God is all powerful are put as two different statements. Sometimes they're put in the same statement, but either way, whichever way you do it, it's still the same. Yeah, and and part of that all powerful is also his attribute of all knowing, right? So so he's completely good. His knowledge is exhaustive, and his his power is in essence limitless. And it's important for us to recognize what's being implied right here about the nature of God and about what it says. It says he could change it if he wants to. That's the main thing that is that we're getting at right there. He could change this if he wants to. And sort of a built-in assumption in that is that he ought to if he's good. Now, as we'll see, that's not necessarily something that we should assume, but it's kind of built into the assumptions. But it is God is all good. God is all powerful. Evil exists. Those are the, the parts that make up what's often called the Epicurean trilemma because a Christian scholar named Lactantius, he quotes it from this philosopher named Epicurus. But of course, this didn't originate with Epicurus. This just is summarized by him. This has been part of the human condition and the human questions about God for thousands of years. And it kind of runs this way that you can affirm any two of those statements, but you can't affirm all three of them. In other words, God might be all good and all powerful, but we would have to then say that evil is a delusion, or God could be all good and evil exist, but God's not powerful. He's not powerful enough to change it. Or we could say that God is all powerful and evil exists, and then we'd have to say that God isn't good. That's the idea behind this. That's the idea of of this, is that we have to deny one of these. And one of the main ways that this gets denied is what's called process theology. Just you need to be aware of this term, aware of this concept, process theology. Process theology is the idea that God is in some sense so bound up with his creation that God isn't able 
to change things. Now, there's a variety of forms of process theology, all the way from a guy named Thierry de Chardin to uh, Charles Hartshorn and, and a variety of other forms of this, but all of them have one thing in common. It is that God would like to change things, but he has so structured the world in his creation of it that he lacks the capacity to be able to change it. Even though he's good and he wants to change it and evil really exists, he can't intervene in this. Yeah, and a good way to be able to remember what process theology is, is the belief that God is good, yes, but he's not perfect in the way that Orthodox Christianity has said he is perfect since its inception. And so, in a sense, God can and is still improving, right? He is God in process as such. And one of the ways that I think we can think of this in terms of music and thinking like that is really there's a lot of questions. So U2's pop album is, I've often said, it is their most theological album. Now, I don't necessarily recommend it. Certainly, some of the songs we're going to mention, don't go run and download those onto your children's iPod because there is some significant language and other things in that album that we aren't recommending. But that album is this dark reflection on what I use as an example of it. It's like the book of Ecclesiastes without the last part of Ecclesiastes. It's looking at life under the sun. If there is no God who can intervene, what is life really like? And it has all of the despair that there is of a life that is lived under the sun instead of looking for somebody beyond the sun, so to speak. That is to say, the being of God. And it is a brilliant album, but it is a dark awful, dirty-feeling album at the same time. There's a dark despair in it. You know what is so fascinating? So, another fun fact, listeners, Timothy and I are huge U2 fans, have talked about U2 so much, and we've never in the six plus years that we've known each other have gotten into this particular conversation. The pop album, the pop tour was the only time that I've ever gotten to see you two in my life. But still, it's musically speaking, stylistically, it's always been one of my least favorites. And I told Timothy that preparing for this episode was the first time that I'd ever read through every word of every song on the album. And content-wise, it is profound. In all the ways that Timothy said, and the theme of of searching, of looking for something beyond yourself and not finding it and therefore loving or settling for or whatnot, uh, the things of this world is just so prevalent. And it's funny that you tie it to Ecclesiastes and particularly the phrase under the sun, because the word sun comes up in almost every song the the difference between sun and moon dark and light is all throughout this album and it's an album that is more pop like right and that the nature of pop is supposed to be like light and airy and and yet this is some of the deep at least some of the deepest theological content i mean u2 has always been a, i think a deep band content wise but god shows up all over the place in this but in a different way 
Yeah, the explicit God talk on this album far outstrips any of the ones that we would identify as more wholesome in their content. And as I think about the problem of evil, and especially this idea of, is God really all-powerful? That's a lot of what the song Wake Up Dead Man is. The U2 song Wake Up Dead Man on pop, it's this wrestling with a world in which God seems to have left the building, or at least God is, is not powerful enough to intervene. Some of the words of that particular song are, Jesus, I'm waiting here boss. I know you're looking out for us, but maybe your hands aren't free. I know you're looking out for us, but maybe your hands aren't free. Whether it's saying that God is too busy or that God is not powerful enough, it's not clear in the song, but still the point is, is that somehow for some reason, God can't reach into the world and help. Wake up, wake up dead man. But then in another song, Staring at the Sun, the lyric says, God is good, but will he listen? I'm nearly great, but there's, is there something I'm missing? Or it's a statement, but there's something I'm missing. And so it's dealing with the same question, just in different ways all throughout this album. And what they're recognizing, whether explicitly or not, they're recognizing that as a Christian, we have to affirm all of those statements. We cannot be Christian and deny that God is good, God is all-powerful, and that evil exists. All of those are things we must recognize and believe if we actually believe in God and in the world as it's presented to us in the Bible and in Scripture. And so as we look at this, let's think a little bit further into this and recognize that there are not there's not one problem of evil. Often we state it as problem of evil, but we've said in this problems of evil because really there's not one problem of evil. There are three problems of evil. There's one of them that's just the one we're going to focus on in this episode is the logical problem of evil. And the logical problem of evil is simply that there's a contradiction in those statements that we've just talked about. There's a logical contradiction that makes it irrational and illogical to believe in God. That's the logical problem of evil. That's the first problem of evil. In the next episode, we're going to look at the evidential problem of evil, which is just to say that the amount of evil in the world makes it unlikely that there's actually a God. And then in the third one, we're going to look at the existential problem of evil, which really asks the question, why is there disproportionate suffering in the world? And more specifically, why do I suffer? And why do the people I love suffer? Why does that person who doesn't seem to deserve it, why do they suffer? And another person doesn't. That's the existential problem of evil. But we're going to begin with the logical problem of evil. And in this, I'm completely going to admit that a lot of what I'm saying is just borrowed straight from a man named Alvin Plantinga, because he's smarter than either of us. He's smarter than both of us put together and squared. He really is. He's way smarter than us. But the reason we're putting it in an episode of a podcast is because he may be way smarter than us, but because we are far less brilliant than he is, we can put these things in words that normal humans understand. (laughs) Which Alvin Plantinga often does not. I mean, his book, uh, God, Freedom, and Evil, for example, that's only 100, 120 pages long. It's really short. Mm. But that particular book, the density of the 
thinking in it, it takes weeks to really absorb that book and really be able to read it. There is a reason why if a student reads that book, affirms that they read it, and writes a brief summary of it, I raise their letter grade, one full letter grade in my class, Christian Apologetics. It's because if you read that and you really do read it, it's something that really is going to be a challenge to you, but it's also rewarding. But so much that we're going to be doing is borrowed from, stolen from Alvin Plantinga, not the Alvin of the Chipmunks, but a different Alvin, the Alvin of Calvin Theological Seminary, that particular Alvin, Alvin Plantinga. And Notre Dame. Let's, you know, and Notre Dame, yes. Right. So here we have Plantinga, and here's what Plantinga does, and is brilliant. It really is absolutely brilliant. He says, look, the only way for us to answer this question of if there is a logical problem of evil that rules out the rationality of believing in God is to ask ourselves, what are the different types of logical inconsistency? And he says, there's three types of logical inconsistencies. And the first one that he gives is an explicit inconsistency, okay? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's an explicit inconsistency. And that's where one assertion in the set of assertions, so we'll just do it his simpler way, God exists, and we're defining God as all-powerful and all-perfect and all-good, so God exists and evil exists. So we're just, we'll reduce it to those two. And ask ourselves, is one assertion in those sets an explicit denial of the other? And we have to answer that question. Does either of those actually explicitly deny the other? Now, let's understand what an explicit denial is. So, an example would be, first statement, the new Mandalorian episode is out. It is available for streaming on Disney+. Plus. Statement number one. Statement number two is, it is not the case that the new Mandalorian episode is out, that it is streaming on Disney+. Plus. Statement number two explicitly denies the first it's that simple, right? Hey, it's raining outside. It's not raining outside. Okay, dude, which is it? You can't say both, right? Logically, explicitly inconsistent. And so as we think about that, it's obvious to us that no matter what, and this is even an atheist is going to admit and grant this, and that is that these two don't explicitly deny one another. And so we move on from that one to Door number two. Inconsistency. So we've got door number one. We opened it and realized, okay, there's nothing there. Nothing Nothing to to find there. Nothing to see. We've got this reality that these do not explicitly reject or deny the other, these different statements in the set. So we get to the second one, formal inconsistency. Formal inconsistency. So, So formal inconsistency, what that means is that an explicit inconsistency can be logically deduced, deduced from the laws of logic from the statements that are being made. And so we'd have to ask ourselves, can we deduce somehow from those statements, God exists, God defined as all-powerful, all-good, all those things, and evil exists, can we infer, can we deduce something from them that creates a logical, explicit inconsistency between them? So more simply put, hey, There is an explicit inconsistency there. You just can't see it yet, right? That's kind of what's going on. So here would be an example. Statement number one, all men are mortal, right? Statement number two, the Mandalorian is a man. Statement number three, it's not the case that the Mandalorian is mortal. So now one and two become inconsistent, logically inconsistent, because of the third statement. 
And so if we see that, we see that we do this all the time. We use these things all the time, these type of statements, but it's important to break this down and to ask ourselves, is there anything that must be deduced from either the existence of God or the existence of evil that would create an explicit inconsistency? So is there anything in there? And the fact is that there really isn't. There's nothing you can deduced from that, that forces you to say there is an explicit inconsistency right here. That's what we've, we've got right there. Now, the third one of these, door number three, door number three is the one that is the messiest room that have, may have something in there that would threaten us, okay? So door number one, there was nothing there. Right. So I guess it's probably good to say here, hey, we all agree here at this point, right? Christians and atheists alike, they look at door number one, door number two, and they both come to this place. Okay, nothing to see here. We can't get you here, Christian. So, these statements cannot be inconsistent in these ways. And so, if they are inconsistent, then they must be inconsistent in a different way, which is door number three. Which we have there, an implicit inconsistency. So we've said there's no explicit inconsistency. We've recognized that. There's no formal inconsistency. Now we have to ask ourselves, is there an implicit inconsistency? Now here's where it gets difficult, because here's what we have to ask ourselves in this is, is there some necessary truth that you could add to this, these statements that would create an inconsistency? Now, an implicit inconsistency is where the inconsistency rises from not only the statements you have, but also from the laws of logic and from necessary truths. Now, we've got to understand what is necessary. We use that word for all sorts of things, including my grandma used to call the restroom the necessary room. And so we use it for all sorts of things, all the way to it's necessary that I get this. But when we're talking about logic, Necessary has a very narrow and specific meaning. It means something that cannot not exist or cannot not be true in any way, shape, or form. It could not not be true. It could not not exist. The opposite of it in logic is the word contingent. Contingent. So there's necessary and there is contingent. So Garrick is not necessary. I am not necessary. Nothing you can see around you right now is necessary. Not even red pandas are necessary. We'd all be impoverished if red pandas didn't exist, just as we would be very impoverished if Garrick and I didn't exist. But the fact is that none of us are necessary beings. We're all contingent beings. There is a state of affairs in which it could have been the case that we did not exist. Something could have happened in the past or in some alternate reality or something like that in which we didn't exist. That means we are contingent. Now, the only necessary being is God. God is the only necessary being, but there are necessary truths. Now, we don't have time in this, and nor do you probably want us to <laughs> get into all of the things of what it means to talk about a necessary truth. But let's just, just one basic way of thinking of this. And that is that generally, mathematical truths are considered to be necessary. Okay, so one plus one would equal two, no matter what universe you're in, no matter what reality, there couldn't have been any other way for things to be other than one plus one equaling two. There's no other way it could be. That's not to say that you'd use in every instance the same words. Obviously, in another culture, in another place, you might use a different word, a different term. But 
one plus one will always equal two. There will always be greater and lesser, more and less. There will always be more age and less age to things. There will always be younger, older. There are all these things to do with that are necessary. They're part of just creaturely existence. Yeah, it's basically like saying, hey, as Timothy said, he and I are not necessary beings, but once we come into existence, right, once creation exists, and with creation, time, right, with the creation of all things comes time. Once creation exists, once it's a reality, then there are some truths that then become necessary, given how how God created, given the logic of creation, right? So, why does this matter? Why does the necessary truth laws of logic matter? Let's go to our example. I'm going to give the example, and then kind of Timothy is going to unpack it, right? So, here's an example of a implicit inconsistency. Let's consider some set of statements. Statement number one, Anakin Skywalker is older than Luke Skywalker. You might want to write that down or use your fingers to count this. Statement number two, Luke is older than Yoda. Statement number three, Yoda is older than Anakin. This is an implicit inconsistency. Why is that? Well, the first thing that somebody who is familiar with the Star Wars universe is going to say, and if if you're not familiar with the Star Wars universe, then you're not the type of person that listens to this podcast anyway, most likely. So you're probably not. So somebody that's familiar with the Star Wars universe is going to say, yeah, but it's not true that Luke's older than Yoda. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're correct about that. But what you've just done is introduced a contingent truth, something that might or might not have been the case given different states of affairs, you're introducing a contingent truth into the statement. We have to do it only on the basis of the laws of logic and of necessary truths. We have to do it completely on that. So you can't introduce a contingent truth of history into this logical set of statements. You have to recognize that if Anakin is older than Luke, and Luke is older than Yoda, Yoda can't be older than than Anakin, if that's the case. You can't have all of those. In other words, there's something, and the necessary truth we're introducing there is this notion of greater and lesser. That's something that is a necessary truth that would be true in any universe that there could be or might be. There will always be a greater and a lesser, a more and a less. There's all those those types of laws like that are going to be necessary by the very nature of creation itself. But here's what I want you to see, is that none of those three statements explicitly contradicts the others. None of them explicitly does. The three statements, Anakin is older than Luke, Luke is older than Yoda, Yoda is older than Anakin, none of those actually explicitly contradict the others. What you've done by recognizing the contradiction in them is you have introduced a necessary truth, and from the laws of logic and a necessary truth, you have recognized that there is a necessity that if Anakin is older than Luke and if Luke is older than Yoda, Yoda can't be older than Anakin. So you have recognized that statement number two is false, not by recognizing or appealing the historicity of Star Wars or the story, the narrative of Star Wars. You've actually recognized that simply by recognizing a necessary truth and a logical inconsistency. So remember, necessary has to do with things that cannot not 
be true. So I tell my children all the time that math isn't necessary, but the truth is math kind of is necessary <laughs> because math the, is things that are due to math, the things to do with math are necessary in a logical sense of the term, even though I don't deem it to be necessary. Only literature and history are really necessary as far as I'm concerned in this. Okay, so that was a lot of very, that was a very technical discussion, laying out these three inconsistencies and, and really harping mostly on the third, because this is the one where if the argument for the logical problem is going to prevail, it has to prevail here at this level. So the question is, why does necessary truth matter? What does it have to do with the way we've put this forth, right? And here's why it matters. The question becomes... Is there a law of logic? Is there a necessary truth that exists behind the scenes that we're not seeing here that will introduce a inconsistency, a logical problem to these statements? That's the question. Is there some necessary truth that we could introduce to this that would actually make them, cause them by the laws of logic, God exists and God is all powerful and all good and evil exists to make those contradict one another? Now, here's the thing. No atheist has yet come up with a necessary truth that meets that qualification. And here's what I love about Alvin Plantinga and his book on this. I deeply love this. He is such a gentleman scholar because here's what he does in his book. I love it. He actually says, okay, the atheists haven't made their, their point strong enough. They haven't actually raised it to the point they could have. And he, in essence, helps the atheists build a stronger case because he wants to build the strongest possible case for the problem of evil that they're presenting. And so that's what Alvin Plantinga does. Alvin Plantinga, he says, you know what? We could actually make your case against my case even better. Here are some ways to do it. And that's what he's doing through this. And he offers what is the strongest, and one might even say the only possible, but let's just say strongest, the strongest candidate for a necessary truth that would actually cause God exists and evil exists to contradict one another. And here's the candidate he gives. It's that an all-good and an all-powerful God would never have any reason, any good reason, to allow evil. He says, if you could demonstrate that that's a necessary truth, then that would, by the laws of logic, cause God exists and evil exists to contradict one another. If an all-good, all-powerful God would never have any good reason to allow evil. On the face of it, that is a strong statement, right? That is a very powerful, just the statement. If you were at a coffee shop having this discussion and someone struggling with this issue sitting across from you makes that statement, I hope you feel the weight of it because it is a weighty objection. But like we said, and the reason that planning us sets it forth is, is because it is so weighty, but he goes on to then defeat it, if you will, right, or to pick it apart. And so the statement is that this this type of being, this God that exists, or if he exists, would never have any reason to allow evil, right? There's no good reason. And so there's a massive problem with that. If this could be demonstrated, then it defeats the argument. But here's the problem. How can you know that, right? Yes, if number three were true, if you create this third statement that it's inconsistent that this type of God would 
have any good reason to allow evil, then you've won the day. But in order to know that this statement is true, you would have to know two things. You'd have to know both that all possible reasons that God might have for allowing evil, number one, and two, you would need to know that none of those reasons is a good one. Well, hey, guess what? None of us, no contingent being can know all of the reasons that God might have for allowing evil. One cannot know, a human being, finite human being cannot know that number three, this this statement is true. It would be almost impossible to show that it's true, and it would certainly be impossible if we have finite knowledge, which every human being has finite knowledge, not infinite knowledge. You certainly couldn't prove it's a necessary truth, because then you'd have to know every possible reason. So here's what most people responding to this, whether they realize it or not, they give some form of this type of an argument back. Well, I certainly can't see any reason why. I don't see any reason why God would allow evil. I look at the things and I can't see why God would allow that. Now, in the very technical language of philosophy, there's a very technical term for this argument that they give when they say, I just can't see any reason why he would. And the technical term for it is, and I'm not making this up, it really is, the technical term for it is a noceum argument, as in, I don't see it. So it's a called a noceum argument. And that's what it's called is a noceum argument. And that's what they're giving at that point. But a noceum argument, it works most of the time in certain things, but it doesn't work with this. Like there's certain things that you can expect to see, that you could expect that it's seeable, where you could say a noceum argument would actually work. If I don't see it, it probably so let's suppose I'm looking out the window of my office right now. Let's suppose that I said the razor crest The Mandalorian ship just landed right outside my window. And somebody else looking out the window says, I don't see it. Well, you know what? That's actually a really good reason not to believe it exists there, not to believe that the Mandalorian has landed the Razor Crest right outside my window because you don't see it. Because you know what? The Razor Crest is the type of thing you could see if it's in your yard. It's that type of thing. But you know what? When we talk about the problem of evil, when we're talking about all the possible reasons why evil might be allowed, we're not talking about something that is something you could necessarily be able to recognize. It's less like the razor crest landing right there, and it's more like a gnat or a speck of a particular speck of dust, or maybe even an atom out there that's saying, I see that. And it's not the type of thing. It's not like a starship in your backyard. Reasons why God might allow evil and why you might or might not be aware of the reasons why aren't like starships in your backyard, because you're talking about an infinite being, and you're talking about an entire history of humanity and of the universe. And in that particular circumstance, the reason why evil might exist isn't necessarily going to be obvious. In fact, it's more likely not to be obvious. And of course, then he gives some possibilities. (laughs) And he's not the only one, but Christians have then given possible reasons that God might have for allowing evil. Exactly. And what we have to recognize here is that sometimes people use the word theodicy, theodicy. They use this term which comes from the word for God and the word for justifying or righteous. And when you come up with a theodicy, what you're trying to say is this is God's exact reason for doing something. But here's what Alvin Plantinga opens the door for us to do. 
we don't have to know or come up with the precise reason God is allowing evil. We don't have to do that. All we have to come up with is one defense. It doesn't even have to be the right defense. All we have to come up with is one good reason, one good defense for why God might. And we've shown that these two statements of God exists, God is all-powerful and all-good and He exists, and the second statement of evil exists, we've shown that those do not contradict one another if we can only show one reason one defense of why a good God might actually allow evil. And you know, as it turns out, there's a lot of them. Yeah, but can I interject a point here, an observation? Friends out there, people who care for other humans and minister to your fellow brothers and sisters in this world, if you take a defense, a possible reason, and you turn it into a theodicy, saying that this is the actual reason, most of the time, you were going to do more harm than good. Not only that, even if that weren't the case, you are laying claim, usually, to a reason, to a thought, a motive. You're laying reason to God's eternal hidden will that He hasn't personally laid out for you and saying that this is the case, this is what God is doing, or this is what God is thinking. And we really need to be careful of doing such things when Scripture has not revealed to us God's reason and motives and will. It is presumptuous for us ever to provide a theodicy. It really is. What we should provide is a defense. And as we'll see as we get toward the third part of the series, we'll see that not only a defense, but also a presence is what we should be providing to people, not trying to give them God's exact reason for a particular instance of suffering. And what Alvin Plantinga does, he offers us actually a couple of different possible defenses. And one of those is the soul-making defense, which you can find in church history all the way back with Irenaeus of Lyon in the second century. It's simply saying that evil and suffering are necessary to turn us into virtuous people, to form us, to shape us into virtuous people. He says there's also a free will defense. That is to say, perhaps a world with moral goodness requires at least the possibility of moral evil, and in a created order, the misuse of good things is a necessary possibility where there is creaturely moral goodness. So, in other words, that's a free will argument. It's saying, look, the type of world in which people can choose what is good also by necessity also includes the possibility of evil. We brought the pop album, U2's pop album, into this for a reason. And this album, as we've said, it, there's this deep longing and searching. And, and in the album, usually we see the dark side of this. The pop album doesn't give us the happily ever after where the characters of these songs find what they've been looking for <laughs> and find kind of the true source and the true goal and, and what we would call God, right? And this is why we've called it a dark album, Advent, intertestamental. So, you mentioned that we give a presence. Our answer, in our answer, we give a presence. What do you mean by that? Well, I think ultimately we actually, we are present with people, but when we are present with people, we are acting out, we are mimicking in some sense, in a good way, 
what God himself has done. That's what we're really doing by being present with people, by entering into their pain and being with them and present with them in their pain. What we are doing is we are doing what God himself did. And as I think about that, I think about some words you hinted at earlier from U2's pop album where he says, God's got his phone off the hook, babe. Would he even pick up if he could? It's been a while since we saw that child hanging around this neighborhood. But then the song goes on to say, so where is the hope and where is the faith and the love? What's that you say to me? Does love light up your Christmas tree? If God will send his angels, if God will send a sign, if God will send his angels, would everything be all right? And here's what I think is beautiful there. And I think Bono gets this and he's hinting at it by speaking of, does love light up your Christmas tree? He's getting it. Is that ultimately God didn't send an angel. God sent himself. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. And thank you so much to B&H Academic for their sponsorship. Go to bhacademic.com to find more theology and more apologetics resources. And also, if you're interested in studying apologetics with me, I want to invite you to take a look at the apologetics programs at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Whether you're thinking about a master's degree or a doctoral degree on campus or online, I would be so glad to have you as a guest at our next preview day. To register, go to sbts.edu slash visit. And also, if you're interested in a podcast that's focused on ministry in urban contexts, go to urban.sbts.edu. That's urban.sbts.edu to listen to the Urban Ministry Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. And this week we have my second child and your second child. That's right. I yes. believe going up against each other. My second child, an 18 year old. Your second child, a how old is he? He is, um, he's nine. Not, um, t- what year? <laughs> what year is this? <laughs>